0: Your Bibles turn to 1 Kings chapter 5, 1 Kings 5. Um, We are going to do the impossible today. This is going to be Mission Impossible, except hopefully we'll get better ratings. And that is we are going to look at three chapters this week. I know you're used to us getting through three words, but Lord willing, we'll get through three chapters. Um, uh, Because what we have here really is the center of the biblical narrative of the Old Testament. This is so, so important. And so the, the, the story slows down. To give us some some detail, it would normally uh, not not do. Page 305 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We'll even gift you a, a nicer Bible if you would like. Come let us know. Also, for our guests, if, if you haven't had a chance already, uh, if you have a bulletin, rip off the the, the little jig. That's a technical term you get from seminary. Uh, write your name, phone number. We just want to reach out to you and tell you thank you for joining us. You can drop it off at the offering plate or come by and see me at the end of the service. I would love to. Uh, talk with you. With that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. We will not be reading three chapters of Scripture. I I want to get you home in time for breakfast in the morning, Um, but I at least want us to start in chapter 5, and we will work our way through these three chapters. The writer of 1 Kings writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, To the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, has, Lord my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary or misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. And as the Lord said to David, my father, Your son, whom I will be set on your throne in your place, shall build a house for my name." Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut temper like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me, I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. You shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram twenty thousand cores of wheat as food for his household, twenty cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave, gave this to Hiram year by year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as He promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father asks that You would be so kind. Every time we gather, we request the same thing: that You would uh, bless us with, um, by opening our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would receive Your word. Believe your word, apply your word, and be transformed by your word. And let it at its core be the story of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. For that is who we are as the people of God. Lord, here we see your presence among us. May we not take it for granted. May we, may I decrease that decrease, you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. This may sound like common sense, but sense ain't common anymore, so maybe... Maybe this this might be new to some of us, but if you're a parent, investing in your children is good for them. I don't know if you knew that or not, but spending time with your kids, especially when they're little, is good for them. That means, dads, when you come home from a long day of work and you sit down at a chair too small for you and you sip imaginary tea with your little girl, you are doing more than playing pretend. Moms, when you hide behind a fort made of pillows and couch cushions, and you begin to uh, shoot whatever imaginary enemies are at the other end of the house that may break a vase, but you are going at it with all your might, you are doing more than playing pretend warfare. You are actually contributing to the well being of your home and of your children we know that presence with children is vital to their upbringing, which is why the absence, particularly of fathers, but parents in general, has had devastating effects in our culture. And if that is true when it comes to mom and dad, how much more so is it true when we buy into a theology of absence when it comes to God? that I can be here, and God, if he exists, he's way over there, and he's indifferent to the decisions I make, the life I live, and everything else. No wonder in a society of absence and a post-Christian generation, we have deep issues of longing, of anxiety, of loneliness, of depression, of shame it's because we have we have we have failed to understand the importance of God's presence to to simplify this let us quickly uh, look at the story we'll look at its significance and finally its savor. let's start with the story here of of 1 kings chapter 5 through 7 You'll notice here with what we read, the first 12 verses, we have the preparation for the building of the temple. Now we need to pause here and think, the story of Solomon in 1 Kings is about 10 chapters, something like that. And five of those chapters, for those who went to uh, a public school, that is one half. You'll find that half the story is about the, the uh, construction and the consecration of the temple which means the central focus of Solomon's rule, reign, and life is the temple. In fact, I would argue here that the climax of the Old Testament's narrative is the construction, the consecration of Solomon's temple. Everything is leading up to it, and what follows is follows from what happened at Solomon's temple. After all, they will later rebuild Solomon's temple, and they will marvel at how it doesn't look anything like Solomon's temple. This is the central focus of the Old Testament narrative. This is so key. When the temple is destroyed, Israel is nearly destroyed completely. This is so, so important. So we see the preparation here, right? What you have here is a trade deal between two kings, Solomon of Israel uh, and Hiram the king of Tyre. And what Solomon needs from, from Hiram, among other things, is is uh, supplies, particularly that of cedar trees, right? And we still use cedar trees for uh, similar projects today. Now we take this for granted, this sort of trade deal, because uh, because in uh, Pax Americana we've taken advantage of all this. Does anyone remember what was it called? Um, help me out. Uh, COVID nineteen is that what it was called? Anyone remember that? It was it was like a decade ago. Some of you are too young to remember. Um, but you remember how like there was we couldn't find anything first is because we thought we were going to run out of toilet paper but after that we we, we couldn't get things because they weren't coming in right they they, they 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 maybe made it a factory over in this state or over in this nation and and because everything was shut down we couldn't say get certain computer chips to put in cars therefore if you wanted to buy a car in 2021 you couldn't do it because our neighbors had no cars hardly right we take this for granted until an international pandemic but although David prepared most things for the temple, there were still a few things that Solomon had to get. And he used his political and economic wisdom, we've already seen in our study of Solomon, to do that. And Hiram is eager to, to, to help out. Verses 13 to 18, we meet the not just the preparation for the construction, but the labor for construction. And it is true that uh, Solomon... Um, uh, enslaves a population to build the temple. Now, we will explore this in greater detail at a later time, Lord willing. But he builds his temple, and as we'll see in uh, chapter uh, uh, 7, he builds his palace, but, but he does it through slave labor. Now, this is a ghastly stroke of irony in the Bible, I think we're supposed to see. And that is what you see is a descendant of slaves enslaving people. I mean, it really is, is horrendous. And let me just add here, just as, just as a bit of a footnote, and I don't want to spend forever on this, is that our uh, revulsion against slavery is a gift to the Western world from Christianity. Slavery was as common in the days of Solomon as it is in many parts of the world today. You would have never have thought to, to abolish slavery until... A man a, from Galilee was crucified and died the death of a slave. The Christians started going around and said, that man who died a slave is your master. And therefore, we are, um, we are revolted by this. Well, we go from the preparation to the labor, and then in chapter 6, we start to look at the design Solomon's temple was an incredible sight. I've already referenced this, but when Zerubbabel's temple was dedicated, uh, those who had seen Solomon's temple 70 years prior and then saw its replacement, Zerubbabel's temple, they weren't very impressed. For example, in, um, um, apparently I didn't hit the save button, Um, the the, uh, Haggai chapter three, verse two, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, the prophet asked. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? I got three too. And and the issue isn't that Zerubbabel's temple wasn't impressive, but it was nothing compared to Solomon's. I want to highlight three things about the design of the temple that I think are significant. Three words I want to throw out to you. The first word is art. Arts. Have you noticed that modern art is terrible? There's a video my, my wife and I like to watch of a art professor, a conservative guy, and he, he loves to do this experiment with his uh, his art students, right? And what he'll do, he'll put a photo up. It looks like a Pollock photo. I can't think of his first name because I'm not the art teacher in our family. My wife is. And, and it's a Pollock photo. He's the guy that looks like he, he takes a bunch of paint and he throws it up in the air and sees where it lands and then he sells it for $10 million. Right, that guy, right? And, and so he puts a picture up and he goes, okay, students, tell me in a word what comes to mind. And they're all like, Bold and, and, and incredible and brave and beautiful. And I don't know, words they make up because they saw it in a magazine once, right? And, and, and he zooms out from the photo, come to find out, it's his apron he used to paint. That's all it was. It wasn't actual canvas. It was his apron. He said, look, if, if you can't tell the difference between an actual work of art by a professional artist and, and the muck on someone's apron, it ain't art, Right? Tolkien described art, whether it's literature, painting, architecture, or, or, or music, or whatever, he described it as sub-creation. And the reason is because he rightly understood that when we engage in art, we engage in design and everything else, what we are doing is we are mirroring what the Creator did in His creation. And we see that all over the temple. Let me give you a few examples. Chapter 6, verse 29. This may be worth looking at here. Just just to highlight it here. Chapter 6, verse 29. uh, Around all the walls of the house, that is the temple, um, he carved engraved figures of cherubim palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms you see the same thing in verse 32 you see it again in verses 33 to 34. in fact if you're interested you go all in chapter 7 starting verse 13 what you get is we meet the artists and and they are hired much like in the tabernacle an artist in architecture was was hired to to do this and the, the point was especially we'll see this here in a second is that they were to do the act of the creator God created creation, and I don't know if you noticed, it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? I'm convinced you can't lay in the back of your pickup truck out somewhere in the rural Kentucky, look up at the stars at night and think, you know what, this looks like it was kind of an accident. But rather we see beauty that is objectively understood because it comes from the Creator who creates beauty. And art is to be a reflection of that. So it shouldn't be surprised we see it at the temple. Psalm 96.6, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Well, what sanctuary? The temple or God's presence? Yes, is the answer. Art is the first word in the design. The second word we would act, we've would we already discussed, and that is creation. Many have noticed, in fact, you could buy entire books on the subject because uh, I've got two of them in my office. And that is to show that the tabernacle and temple are direct reflections of Creation. Notice first of all the structure. Forgive me, I had a photo of this that would make it a lot easier to see and a lot quicker to to explain. But you can take the, the design of the Garden of Eden and the design of the Tabernacle and Temple, and they match. In the garden, you have the wilderness, right? And then you have Eden. And within Eden is a garden of Eden. And within the Garden of Eden was the Tree of Life, right? What is it that you get at the temple? On the outside, you have, if if you will, a wilderness at the tabernacle, literal wilderness. And then from there, you you have the sanctuary. within. you have the holy place. Within there, you have the holy of holies. And then within there, you have the Ark of the Covenants. It's the same structure both in Eden and in the temple, which means we are to see the Garden of Eden is more than a place with, with large trees and tomato plants and taters, right? Rather, it is a, a, the first temple in creation that like God put it so where he and man can walk together. Also, we see the mirrors of orientation. Where is the door located in Eden? The east. You remember that they are exiled east of Eden, Where is it located in the temple? you got to go east. If you want to come into the temple, you come in from the east. Garden imagery is everywhere. Obviously, the garden has trees and plants and... And gold and everything else. What do you get at the tabernacle and temple? All the same thing. I've already shown you in chapter 6, the design of the artist was of trees, of, of flowers, of gold. The priest would wear the jewels that are present in Eden itself, the onyx stone and other stuff like that. Those parallels are uh, significant. In fact, in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, right? What do you find at the heart of the temple? A menorah, which is a, which is a type of tree which is to symbolize God's uh, giving of the tree of life. Or let us look finally at the cherubim. We could look at, at about a hundred more parallels, but the cherubim, what are the cherubim? Well, they're not chubby little angels so slightly overweight can somehow float on clouds. That's not what cherubim are. Their primary purpose is to guard holy spaces, which is why you'll find them Uh, In the presence of God. It's why when Adam and Eve, who were to guard the holy place of Eden, are exiled, God sends the cherubim to protect God's temple from both the serpents and mankind. What do we find in the temple? The cherubim. In fact, we read over and over again, Psalm 99.1 is just one example. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, referencing the holy place, the Ark of the Covenants. One last word I think we need to associate with the design of the temple that is important. That is holy. We've seen art, we've seen creation, holy. It mirrors the throne room of God. The presence of the cherubim, again, is not accidental. Is They are to guard holy space. The temple was to be a holy space. Here we are looking at the construction of it. Next week we'll have more to say about this, Lord willing, but you will see the consecration of this space. And what we see with God's presence is that space and people must be made holy because God... Is holy. How can God dwell with his people if they are not holy? Well, that's the story that we see here in these three chapters. Let's look briefly at the significance of these three chapters. Why is this so important? Well, this is not a political statement, it's an illustration, so don't take it as political. But our senator every year likes to give what he calls the Festivus Report on Government Waste. I find this entertaining. I mean, I like this, Senator, and that's fine, but this is just an illustration. Can I give you a few from his last report? I just find this stuff entertaining. December twenty, December of 2022, uh, let me give you a few examples. The National Institutes of Health spent $187,500 to verify your tax dollars if children love pets. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that's a maybe. Maybe. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level spent $689,222 to study romance between parrots. Yeah, they're parrots. You should be able to ask them if they love each other, I would think, right? Anyways. The National Institute of Health funded a $3 million annual research project to watch hamsters on steroids fights. Now, let me say the dude in me thinks... That, that's, that's money well spent. <laughs> I mean, there's a TikTok of that somewhere, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm willing to give my information to China just to watch that video, okay? My, fun, my favorite example, this doesn't come from Senator Paul, but it's still in, in my study of this. I had come across this some time ago. It's my favorite example. Um, uh, federal dollars were given to researchers at George, Georgia Tech of $120,000 to study if a real-life Thanos... For those of you who know nothing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's a purple dude with an axe to grind, okay? He's a bad dude, all right? Um, If a real-life Thanos could actually snap his fingers while simultaneously wearing the Infinity Gauntlets. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's an illustration. We'll move on quickly. Here's their conclusion. Quote, Thanos could not have snapped because of his metal-armored fingers so, it's probably the Hollywood special effects rather than actual physics at play. You feel better about that? That cost our country $120,000. Not that we needed that for anything else. So, so, when I read this text, right, the temptation is to see this as yet another government project. Why is it bad? Well, as we've already said, I, I think this right here is the climax of the Old Testament. There have been some. Uh, other climaxes, right? You can look at the calling of Israel through Abraham, the redemption of Israel through Moses and Joshua. Here is the consecration of Israel. Here is Solomon. It is here where God will dwell with His people. The significance of this is rooted in a theology of presence. The fundamental story of the Bible is how can a holy and righteous God dwell? with unholy, wicked people. What separates Christianity from all other religions is how we answer that fundamental question. Most religions, whether secular or traditional, will say, we can ascend to the heavens. You can do it through ritual, You could do it through journeys. You can go visit Mecca. You can climb a mountain. You can watch uh, old episodes of Oprah from the 1990s. You can do whatever it is. You can do any of that. But you have the power within yourself, if you follow this regiment, to ascend to the heavens. Along comes Christianity, uh, uh, gifted with this from, from this tradition of Judaism, is to say, no, actually... It can't happen that way. You see the question isn't it how can man dwell with God? Because we can't. But how is it possible that God can dwell with man? The answer is twofold. First, reconciliation, second, purity. We must be reconciled to God. And that is done through the means of atonement. One who is innocent deserving Of no punishment must serve as our substitute so that those worthy of punishment might be given grace. And not just grace, but purity. We must be reconciled to a holy God and therefore made holy. So that is why for three chapters, we get all these details about design and, and, and what it has to look like and where the material comes from, and you keep reading it, and we don't have time to look into it, how the stone is cut. Now not, 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 a, not a chisel or a hammer can touch it. It has to be very precise because this will be holy space, fit only for a people made holy. It's the only way God can dwell with man is for God to make men holy and for Him to come down. At the root of the story is one of presence, and we've been prepared for it. When Adam and Eve were in the first temple, what we saw was God and man dwelling together until they decided they could be their own gods. And humanity has decided that we can rule and reign without Him. We have chosen for ourselves a theology of absence, No wonder, again, we are so miserable, we are so violent, we are so anxious, we are so lost because we are exiles in a broken world. But what does God do? He offers the first couple immediately atonement for the purpose of reconciliation. And we see God showing up here and there with the patriarchs. We meet him with Abraham while the, while the angels go to Sodom. There is Yahweh in human form there with Abraham. He is walking among his people. We see it with Moses at the burning bush. He consecrates Moses after all. Take off your sand. This is holy ground. And he sends them unto a mission to a redeemed people. There in the wilderness, he guides them by cloud by day. Fire by night, he is with his people. And then Moses orders the the tabernacle, a, a, a portable temple, if you will, by which God will consecrate his people by dwelling among them. And then they will enter into the promised land, waiting for God to permanently reside among his people. And along comes David to extend those borders to bring about peace so that Solomon can come and say the time has come. The people are ready for God to dwell with us forever and ever. To understand the beauty of this passage, we must understand the theology of presence. What we want deep inside of us is for God to be with us. Exodus 29:45, God says, "I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God." But the tabernacle was a temporary solution. It's a tent, a fancy tent, but a tent nonetheless. This temple is made of gold. It's made of cedars from Lebanon. It's made of good material. Surely it will stay forever. And if you are a Jew reading this, it is haunting to know the temple is no more. And that is where we must go from the significance of this passage to the Savior that is clearly here in this passage. Turn with me to... uh, Chapter uh, 6, verse uh, 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statues, obey my rules, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Sounds like what he said about the tabernacle in Exodus, doesn't it? The temple is the climax of the yod, but it isn't the solution to humanity. From the beginning, Israel knew the God of the heavens cannot be bound to a building. We need something more. What we need is a Savior. You see, Israel finally realized this. When instead of following what God had commanded Solomon, that they would they would be a people set apart among the nations and to draw the nations to themselves, for the closer you got to Israel, the closer you got to the divine. they rather decided to become like the nations. And in judgment, God dispersed them, first to the Assyrians, then to the Babylonians. It isn't until a carpenter's son showed up and made a crazy claim. John tells us this in John chapter 1 that the Logos had become flesh. The divine Son of God had become flesh, and he dwelt among us. John 1.14. That word dwelt in the Greek is the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What is the central story of the tabernacle and temple? It is God's presence with his people. God has come down in the person of Christ. And we, we see this all over the place, don't we? It, right after that statement in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Christ has tabernacle among us, God has tabernacle among us, among the incarnate Christ. In chapter 2 of John's gospel, we get the cleansing of the temple. Now in the synoptics, that's at the end of Jesus' ministry, shortly after triumphal entry. In John's gospel, it's right after the announcement, here is the temple. It's in Christ. It's not in, not in Herod's renovated Zerubbabel's temple. You remember what happens in John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple and and those who, who, who have really good church attendance come up to Jesus and say, by what sign do you do this? And he says, let me tell you this, in three days, I'll tear it down and I'll rebuild it. And they're like, dude, it took over 40 to renovate the thing. Who do you think you are? And John tells us he's not referencing a building for God doesn't dwell in a building, right? Rather, he's saying the sun will be destroyed, the true and better temple, and will be raised again. Then we will see the presence of God among his people. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus has climbed the Mount of Olives right over there. You can see the temple. If you've been to Mount of Olives now, you can see now it's the Dome of Rock. But it's the same sort of, so, so, sort of vantage point. You remember they say? As they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings we have. Remember what Jesus says? Give it a couple years, boys. Not a stone will be left. Why? Why? Because one who is a true and better temple had already come. When Christ dies upon the cross, one of the the, the phenomena that happens is the ripping of the curtain because God doesn't dwell behind a sheet anymore. Jesus is the true and better temple, which means we see in Christ the climax of Scripture that, first of all, God pursues rebels like you and me, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Joseph and Moses and Joshua, like Samuel and David and Solomon. He pursues rebels like you and me. And we see in the story of the temple, climaxing not with Solomon, but one who is a better Solomon, Christ, that God's grace is a perfecting grace. You don't come to the temple thinking, let me just uh, get my my, my, my uh, uh, fire insurance so that when I die, I'm okay. But then I'm going to go right back to where I was. No, as you approach holy ground, you are made holy by the atoning work of Christ. The people of God are declared and made holy by the grace of God. But, but the real point of all of this we see in the Bible is to say not just that Jesus is a true and better temple, but because of his resurrection and ascension, you are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you? You understand that how we carry ourselves matters. Because you are the first thing people will know and understand about the truth of the gospel. Many people will not believe in our Christ because we Christians act as if we don't by our lives. What you do with your bodies, what you do with your lives, what you do with your vocations, what you do in your family, what you do in your marriage, you have the presence of God within you. You have been consecrated by Christ himself, by his finished work upon the Christ. Reconciliation has been made through Christ's resurrection. Now be made pure. The work of reconciliation. Within the church has been woefully ignored. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But what is the story of Scripture? How are we reconciled to God? The atoning work of Christ. He'll later tell us in the same passage to be reconciled to our neighbors, 2 Corinthians 5:18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, as a result, the ministry of reconciliation. You want to be the temple of God? Two things. Reconciliation, purity. Reconciliation and purity. And I think that is probably where most of us find ourselves lacking. Some of us here have never been reconciled to God. Maybe you've gone through the motions, maybe you've been baptized, maybe you walked the aisle, maybe you went to youth camp, maybe you even cried at vacation Bible school. I don't know what your story is, but ask yourself, have I really been reconciled to God in Christ? Have I really received for myself the hope of the gospel, Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Have I done that? And if not, will you not do it this morning? And there are some here who you think you've you've done the the bare minimum, but yet you are standing on holy ground unclean. It's time to remove your sandals. It's time to put on a, a clean white robe. It is time to consecrate yourself for godly service. Where are you in this passage? The good news I have for you is that God has not abandoned us rebels. But will you go to Him? Will you seek to become more like him or will you continue to travel east of Eden? A little three-year-old girl went to her pediatrician with the flu. Pediatricians, you know, good doctors will do is they'll try to be goofy with the little kids just to get them to participate. And so uh, the doctor uh, went up to the apprehensive girl and, 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 and looked into her ears and said, Will I find Big Bird here? No, said the little girl doctor went to examine her throat. Will I find a cookie monster here? No, you won't find the cookie monster there, she said. Finally, she went to listen to the little girl's heart and says, Will I find Barney there? No, said the little girl. Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underwear. <laughs> I think the little girl is on this something, something that I think many of us forgets. Can I quote Luther, Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer? Should anyone knock at my heart and say, who lives here? I should reply, not Martin Luther, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's respond with repentance. Let's pray. Our Father asked